Yeah, that's why he's always telling me to do it. Yeah. All right, welcome everybody. Lesson number 24, page 231 of Master Plan for Life. Welcome those on live stream. And this tonight and then two more Wednesdays and, and that's it, you've endured to the end. And I remind you that the final two weeks, so next week and the following, we're going to cover two lessons in each of those weeks in order to finish. So next week it'll be lessons 25 and 26 and then the final two lessons, 27 and 28, two weeks from tonight. So if you're keeping up with the homework, which I encourage you to do, then you'd want to do it for two lessons over those, over those next couple of weeks. The good news is that the two lessons that we're doing each of those two weeks are related lessons. So it's not that they're disparate subjects. They're actually related to each other, so it should flow, uh, flow just fine. But tonight, it's going to be Lesson 24. I'll remind you where that fits in on page 231. But we have seen that the purpose of the church is to glorify God through the proclamation of His Word. But in order to achieve that, the Bible teaches that there are three objectives that the church must pursue in order to glorify God. And those are evangelism, edification, and expansion. And each of those three objectives has ways that you go about doing them. So evangelism, the first of those three, is personal witness, but it's also corporate mission. It's our individual efforts at getting the gospel out, but it's also our collective effort, congregational effort, church effort, at seeing the work of the Lord advance. So that's how the first objective, evangelism, is achieved. Those two ways, personal witness and corporate mission, and we had lessons on each of, those, each of those two individually. Then we move over to the second of the three objectives, edification, and edification has three ways that it's accomplished, education and worship, and then tonight we're going to see fellowship. So the last two weeks we've looked at education, we've looked at worship, tonight uh, fellowship. And then we'll go over to next week, the third of the three objectives, expansion, and there are two ways that we accomplish that, and that's why I said that the, those two lessons are related to each other. We'll look at those next week, uh, lessons 25 and 26. And then our final two weeks are on the future of the church. So some of the things the Bible teaches about the future, the tribulation, the kingdom, that kind of thing, those last two lessons. So tonight's lesson, lesson 24 then, is part of how the church achieves the objective of edification. It's the third of the three ways we do that. Education, worship, and now tonight, uh, fellowship. So top of page 231, it's been shown that a key task of the local church is to provide a spiritual education for its membership. The truths that a believer is taught are to be expressed through worship, that's the vertical relationship, and then fellowship horizontal. So what that's saying is, if we're going to edify, achieve that objective of edification, if we're going to build people up, that's what edification means, then we're going to have to teach them, educate them in the, the Word of God, and in particular, about who God is, and then who we are, and what God expects of us, and how we failed with that, and what God's solution is to reconciling that, uh, a full education. And then having educated, having taught people, that 
that person who is taught ought to express uh, the change that that teaching makes in their lives in a couple of, couple of ways. One is worship. They should worship the God about whom they've been taught. And that's why we say that's the vertical relationship, you know, up and down between us and God. And then there is the horizontal relationship, side to side, uh, us to each other. And that's what we mean by fellowship. But both of those are an expression. They're expre- we express what we're taught in the Bible by worshiping and fellowshipping. Worship is, middle of that paragraph, the believer's relationship with God. Fellowship is the believer's relationship with other believers. Now, technically, the term fellowship is also used, as we're going to see, to describe the believer's relationship with God. But the major emphasis on this lesson is going to be the horizontal aspect. So tonight's about fellowship, okay? What the Bible teaches about that. The biblical term for fellowship is, here's the Greek term, koinonia. So even if you haven't gone to seminary and you have never, ta- never taken a biblical Greek class, New Testament Greek class, that might be a word you've heard. You know, there are these handful of Greek words that if you hang around in church long enough, you hear them every now and then. You hear preachers refer to them. Agape, you might hear that, you know, is the biblical word for love. Uh, but koinonia, and koinonia is the word for, for fellowship. And it's, we say here it means to share something in common with someone else. So have you ever heard the uh, term uh, to coin a phrase? Yeah, well, that's to, that's to make a phrase commonly used. And so that's why we say that. Or there's actually a, a couple of kinds of Greek. Uh, there's what's called classical Greek. And then there is the way the New Testament was written. The Greek that the New Testament was written in is not classical Greek. It's Koine Greek. Koine Greek. Uh, the K-O-I-N-E. Koine. And that is common, everyday Greek. So your New Testament was not written in highbrow Greek. Uh, it was written in it was written in the regular Greek of the streets that 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 uh, people use, and that because it was common, it's called Koine Koine Greek, emphasizing what we say here to share something in common with someone else. It stresses it's a word that stresses unity. Koinonia is applied in the Bible to three relationships that we have with God, in the faith, and with one another. So we're briefly going to look at fellowship with God, because we've already covered that primarily under the doctrine of salvation back several weeks ago. So we'll cover that for a bit, but then we'll spend most of our time looking at actually the third, the second and third, but in particular the third of those with one another. First of all, believers have fellowship with with God. The believer's relationship with God was discussed in the last lesson. Here, two observations under worship. Here, two observations should be noted concerning the Bible's use of the word fellowship to describe this relationship. First, fellowship with God is a synonym for salvation. Sometimes it's said to have fellowship with God means to live in a state of spiritual growth. In contrast, it's said that there are believers who never grow spiritually and so are out of fellowship with God. Therefore, a person could receive Jesus as Savior, in effect using Him as a fire escape, But obedience to Him would be optional. But the Bible uses fellowship with God as an actual description of of salvation. So let's just stop there for a minute. So the idea there 
that we're describing is that some have erroneously taught and it's really, it really caught on over many years in our country especially and primarily through a seminary in Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary, which over the years has had many, many wonderful uh, professors and who've written a lot of very helpful material, material that's been very helpful to me and lots of people over the years. Unfortunately, they also had, in addition to those wonderful people, they had people who taught this kind of thing. The idea that someone can be out of fellowship with God but still be a Christian. Uh, and so this is a person who received Jesus as Savior. They prayed a prayer to ask for Him, him to forgive their sins, but nothing really has changed in their, in their life. And so there was, a whole, there was a whole group of people who taught that and, and still do, and in fact are very, uh, very opposed to the idea of what's sometimes called lordship salvation. The idea that when you come to Christ, that you, yes, uh, He's your Savior, and He saves you, He rescues you, He delivers you from hell, and He delivers you from the penalty of your sin, but also at the same time when you come to Christ, He's your Savior, but He's also your Lord. And that's why the Lordship salvation piece. And most of you here uh, are members of our church. You've therefore filled out our one-page application for membership, and you may remember we ask you on there, uh, who, who is Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? What has Jesus done for us? Uh, and one of the things we want to, people to say about who Jesus is is, yes, He's our Savior, but He's also our Lord. And to really underscore that, the last question on the one-page uh, application says, does Jesus have the right to complete authority over your life? And do you promise to follow Him? And we're looking for a yes answer to that, <laughs> Okay. So it's not enough for us that you say, I ask Jesus to forgive me. He's my Savior. But the Bible teaches He's also your Lord. And as a result of that, then, you are pursuing growth in Him. And you desire now. You do it haltingly, as I do. Uh, we, we have to grow that over the remainder of our lives. Uh, so none of us has arrived until we actually get to heaven, all of that. But He is our Lord. We love Him. We commit ourselves to Him and we seek to grow in Him. But the reason we have this paragraph here is because unfortunately some people say, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can have salvation but not be in that lordship relationship with Christ. You have the fire escape but not the life that, the, the life that goes with it. But here's what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when we are saved, we are called into fellowship with God. Uh, now, I don't have a problem with somebody saying, hey, I've got a friend, you know, pray for my friend who is a professing Christian. I believe they are a genuine Christian, but they're in a time of difficulty. Uh, they're, they're, they're having a difficult time following the Lord consistently. And so I'm praying for them spiritually, that they'll come out of this sort of spiritual funk that they're, they're in. And sometimes people will call that they're out of fellowship with God. And, and I don't have a problem with that terminology as long as we understand that a genuine believer is actually somebody who follows, who follows God. And if that person is in that state, it's a temporary state for a believer. Um, it's not an ongoing state. And, and I know it's not an ongoing state because the Bible teaches 
that if you continue in that long enough, God will kill you. Just not to put too fine a point on it. But <laughs> so it'll be temporary one way or another, okay? <laughs> he disciplines those He loves, the Bible says. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that there are people who are sick or who have fallen asleep, have died, because they have participated in the Lord's table unworthily, you know, taking it in a flippant kind of manner and not taking into account their sin and uh, confessing sin before they, before they do it. Uh, God takes that kind of thing seriously, okay? So uh, that's, that's what we're saying here. It's a synonym for salvation. B, fellowship with God is evidenced by conformity to His character. Spiritual growth is not optional for the believer. It's, in fact, evidence of salvation. First John, as we saw a few weeks ago, was written to present the test of true salvation. And since we saw those a few weeks ago, just very quickly we'll remind you what they are. One is the test of righteousness. A believer must strive to be righteous as God is righteous, according to 1 John chapter 2. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. And then there is the test of adhering <clears throat> to sound teaching, to sound doctrine. You don't deny aspects of truth if you belong to the Lord. We embrace the truth as revealed by the God who is truth. Again, 1 John chapter 5, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then we also love one another. So we practice righteousness, we adhere to sound doctrine, we love one another. So believers have fellowship with God. Secondly, believers have fellowship in the faith. Unity among believers, what we have in common, must be defined in terms of a common doctrine, that is, the faith. Apart from the faith, fellowship is impossible. So let's just stop there for a second. Apart from the faith, fellowship is impossible. So one of the implications of that is this, that you as an individual and we as a church should not engage in common spiritual cause with people who deny aspects of the faith. So the Bible, the Bible teaches that you're to stay away from people who are, who are in error doctrinally. Uh, and so our church would not engage in a joint service, for example, with people who deny the truth about how someone is saved, how someone is justified. So we would not uh, engage in a joint service with a Roman Catholic church. Why? Because the Roman Catholic church teaches that justification comes by what you do. Not, only, not simply by what Christ has, has done. Well, that's adding works to salvation. That's a serious, serious error. And so we simply, we simply cannot, we, can't, we don't have fellowship in the faith. That's a denial of a key aspect of the faith. Now, I just talked about a denial of justification. Now, what if somebody uh, has a disagreement about uh, something else? You know, when we, in a couple of weeks, talk about end time issues, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the Bible teaching a rapture of the church, and that means that the Lord is going to call away His people at some point in the future, and that that rapture, that calling away, is going to happen just before the beginning of something called the seven-year tribulation, okay? So we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But what if somebody doesn't agree that, that the rapture happens 
you know, just before the beginning of the, the tribulation. There are lots of people who believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the seven years. All right, so we disagree about that. Is that the same as, is that the same kind of error as justification by faith alone? You know, those are, those are a different quality, aren't they? One, one has eternal consequences. The other one is one of us is just simply wrong about it. And so, you know, we, we have to weigh these issues. Some of them are part of what we call the faith. Um, and by that, we, we mean those things that are necessary in order to embrace genuine Christianity, uh, in order to embrace genuine salvation. Justification is one of those. Pre-tribulation rapture is, is not. Believers share a partnership to proclaim the, the Word of God. The church has a collective responsibility to proclaim the Word of God. One way this can be accomplished is through the support of missionary activity. Paul was joyful over the support he received, for example, from the Philippian church. He says in the first chapter to his, in his letter to the Philippians, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now notice that word partnership. Guess what Greek word that is? Koinonia. So it's translated here partnership. Or in some translations, in fact, I think in the King James, it says fellowship in the gospel. So that word koinonia is sometimes translated participation, sometimes translated fellowship, sometimes partnership, all of it, you know, that we are in common cause, we have something in common together. Support of missions activity alone will not satisfy our responsibility. There must also be personal involvement. So to an individual, a friend of his, a named Philemon, Paul wrote a one-chapter letter in your New Testament by that name, Philemon, and he says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective. So he's not, in that case, writing to a church. He's writing to a guy, one guy. And again, partnership is koinonia. We saw the necessity of personal evangelism uh, just a few weeks ago uh, in, in another lesson. So believers share a partnership to proclaim the Word of God and to defend the Word of God. Fellowship in the Word of God is more than proclaiming it. There must also be a commitment to maintain purity of doctrine in the churches. That's accomplished in a couple of ways. I already mentioned we don't cooperate with those who teach error. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Now again, we have to be careful how we define that. It's not over every disagreement. Uh, Christians have disagreed for, since the beginning of the church. Uh, you know, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas, as we go through the book of Acts and we get to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see that Paul and Barnabas, the Bible says, had a sharp, <laughs> an intense disagreement with each other. Now, in that case, it wasn't over a doctrinal issue, it was over a practical issue, but nonetheless, they had, they had uh, disagreements. And, um, and in Romans chapter 14, Paul says for Christians to accept one another and for us not to be divided over disputable or doubtful kinds of issues, things that people can just agree to disagree on. So it's not over every issue, but over gospel issues, over salvation issues, over issues that are clear in the, in the Word of God. On those kinds of things, we must not cooperate with those who teach error. Second John says that, top of page 233. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares 
in their wicked works. So you see, that's why we got to be careful because cooperating with people who teach obvious error and serious error then is something that reflects upon, reflects upon us, and God sees it that way. And so we are an accomplice, in effect, in their error when we, when we do that. When it says, don't welcome them into your house, remember that very often churches met where? In the earth here. They met in, in houses. So this is, yes, something to a church, but also uh, there, there were itinerant evangelists that, that went around, and they would need hospitality, they would need housing. So it can refer to a house where a church meets, or it can just refer to a house where uh, people are helping a, a Christian worker. But it's a warning to say, if that Christian worker is not teaching consistent gospel doctrine, then whether it's the church or whether it's an individual house, you shouldn't participate in their work. You know, this is also a warning, would it not be, about giving money to people? being careful about who you give money to, uh, because if you give money to people who don't teach, if you gave money to Joel Osteen, you know, you're pre- like he needs money, number one, <laughs> right? But you're participating in his, his error, and uh, he's, not, he's teaching a health and wealth, false prosperity kind of gospel, and you shouldn't be participating in that. So believers do not cooperate with error and re- seek to refute error. This is written to pastors in Titus chapter 1. They, we must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. But not only pastors, but all believers must be involved in exposing and refuting false doctrine. You know, so the better you know and are taught doctrine, then the better you can recognize error, and then you can call people to, uh, to repentance for false, for false teaching. So believers have fellowship with with God. They have fellowship in the faith. And then we want to spend the remainder of our time and most of our time on this last one, fellowship with one another. Fellowship or unity among the members of a church is one of the distinguishing marks of genuine believers. All right, let me start stop there for a sec. So uh, a few things about that. Uh, as we're going to see in your New Testament, there's just a ton that's said about the relationship that believers have with each other. It's real, you're going to see it's really important to God, really important. Uh, so are we, as individuals, then need to prioritize that. You should not be, none of us should be, church attenders, simply church attenders. If you're simply a church attender, that means you show up and then you leave. And for many people, that mindset is easy to develop. I show up and I leave. I've done my duty. And, you know, we live in a culture where that's the way a lot of people think about church. It's an obligation that you do before God. And so you do it. You fulfill it. And so the church meets on Sunday. I put my hour in. I leave after that. If I'm really committed, I put my two hours in. And I leave after, I live at, leave after that. In terms of getting involved with anybody, you know, getting to know anybody, actually sharing life on life with anybody. There's none of that that goes on for a lot of people. And in fact, often our churches are structured in a way that kind of encourages that. We just have the service and then, and then people leave. And there aren't other times, additional times, or times wrapped around that service 
that encourage people to be in each other's space. So that's one of the reasons that we've structured our church the way we have and our schedule the way we have, is to kind of force the issue on people, <laughs> is to, to, to force you know, people to be in each other's space. Uh, so that you have to talk to have to talk to somebody. You're bump, we hope you're bumping into somebody, you know, on Sunday morning between services when we have that cafe community time. That is not just you know because we know people like coffee and people are hungry on Sunday morning, and so we offer some bagels and all that. You know that's all true, but it's much more strategic than that. It's designed to put people in space with one another, cup of coffee in hand, and then say good morning and strike up a conversation and to get it to know each other with the idea of something going deeper than, than that. It's also the same reason that we have Sunday evening, uh, twice a month, uh, community groups, home groups, so that you're in the presence of people in a different kind of setting. You're in the presence of people in a home, in a, in a living room, and you're having snacks before that, but then uh, you're talking about God's Word together, and how to apply it to your life, and then you're having a time of prayer together, and people are submitting prayer requests uh, for themselves or for, uh, for others. You're getting to know what's going on in their lives. You're letting people know what's going on in your life. You know, you're creating some vulnerability about yourself because you're opening up a little bit about uh, this is what's happening with me. Pray for me. This is what I struggle with, whatever, whatever it is, right? Uh, but the Bible, as we'll see, speaks a lot to that. So we individually need to care about it. We're not just church attenders only. Uh, and then collectively, as a church, we need to structure the ministries in a way to encourage that. And, and, and I'm telling you that we've really done that, and that's why things are set up the way they are. Okay? Uh, conversely, if that's what's supposed to happen, and it is, then think about how tragic it is when... It not only doesn't happen in just sort of a benign, neutral way where people, they haven't caused any trouble, they just also haven't pursued any, any active love with others. So they just come and they leave. All right, that, that's bad enough. What's even worse, when churches have dissension and they have division and they split, and that happens. And it's really ugly, isn't it? Um, this is one of the things, it's a distinguishing mark we say here. It's one of the distinguishing marks of genuine believers that we have unity among the members of a church. Well, if that's true, and then a church ruptures, that's saying something really bad, isn't it? And it's saying something really bad about the people involved, it's saying something really bad about the church to the community? Heaven forbid, God forbid, that Community Bible Church be what it is right now. I'm so thankful for where God has brought our church right now. But, you know, and, and by God's grace, we're able to move forward with our 10-year plan, let's say, and we, we add on to our building on the, on the back. And so we have an auditorium to accommodate the additional people that are coming. And then there's some kind of big rupture. And, uh, and an auditorium that's supposed to hold 600 people now has 150 in it. And when people show up now after that, after that rupture, they walk into a building that's supposed to have way more people in it and a parking lot that's supposed to have way more cars in it. 
and they know immediately something happened here, don't they? It harms, it harms the, the reputation of Christ. It, it, it harms a church. There are churches all over the place that fit exactly into what I just said to you. I mean, I know, I know them personally. And at one time they were this and now they're that. And very often it's because of some kind of problem that happened in between. I know of a church right now where I went to a pastor seminar like three weeks ago, and this guy, the pastor, was, was making a presentation. He's fantastic. He's a fantastic guy. I've heard about him. I've been wanting to meet him. I knew he was doing this. I go to this thing. Before he even steps up to speak, I go up and introduce myself. I give him my card. I say, hey, let's, let's get together. I'd like to have coffee with you. He's a fantastic guy. And he's been at his church for about five, six years. Church is really going well. Uh, it's, it's growing all of that, and the week after I meet this guy, um, he resigns, the whole staff resigns. On their website, one week they had him, staff, deacons, elders, they had a whole bunch of people. And if you go to that church's website right now, they got like four people there left in leadership, and they had like 20. They left. They had a split. He resigned. That church back about seven, eight years ago built a new auditorium. It's beautiful. Those people are rattling around in that auditorium now. On Easter, what was it like on Easter in a church where something like that has happened? The people who left, where did they go to church on Easter? And it was just a few weeks before Easter that this all went down. So here's this church that was moving forward for Jesus. And now it's a testimony to division. And now people who came in there on Easter even, I guarantee you, people who went in there on Easter are going, something's up. In fact, I knew something was going on at the church, but I didn't know it was going to rupture like that. I knew something was going on at the church even before I met the, the pastor because I knew a couple of people who had gone there who have come now to our church. They found us, but they had first found them, and they learned that there was something going on even before the rupture happened. That there were people in the church that said, hey, if you're looking for a church, this isn't it. Because we got some issues going on. And so some of them came here. I mean, I'm glad they came here, but I'm really sad that, you know, if we ever had we have a situation, people come in here and you know, we had people say, hey, you might want to find some place else, right? And then a couple weeks later, it blows up. So I, I'm saying that, guys, to just say, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And what a sad testimony it is for people who claim to follow him who said that. And then we have these kinds of ruptures. We should be able to solve stuff, right? Especially personal kinds of issues. Now, in their case, it was about how the church should be governed, and you've got a family that historically has run this church. Can you believe that? And, the, and they've got some kind of board set up where you have to have the family's approval in order for anything to get done. And the family decided we weren't going to let this new pastor and the elders that he had brought along uh, with them, uh, lead the church. 
And so they're going to leave. And so they're the ones who are left. Think about, think about how Jesus views that. Who does the church belong to, for heaven's sake? It doesn't belong to some family. It doesn't belong to me. Uh, I'll, just tell you, I'll just tell you guys, I'm on a roll now, okay? But, I mean, but this really means a lot to me. But back several years ago, um, we had a situation arise in 2014, 2015 that could have killed our church, could have really harmed our church. It was, a real, it was the hardest time. I've been here for now in my 21st year, and it's been a blast. It's been wonderful. But that approximately two years was the hardest time uh, I've had. And so we had to wait. We had to make our way through that. And it could have gone the way so many other churches have, but God spared us. Thanks be to God. But I will tell you this, honestly, as I stand here before you and before God, that if it was best for the church that I leave and keep the church intact to move forward, then I would leave. Because it ain't my church. The church is more important than me. There is no power struggle that is worth harming the reputation of Christ and harming His church. Now, thankfully, it didn't have to come to that. But that's God. That's God sparing us. But Satan makes a play for that. And he did. He made his play for us. And he was beaten back. And I just thank God for that all the time. But it happens. And those of us that are members of the church, those of us in leadership in the church, we have always got to remember, this is Jesus Christ's church. And nobody is more important than the church. Nobody is more important than the Lord of the church, of course. And so the idea that you would have somebody say, this is our church, and we're going to hold on to the power of this church, and we're going to allow its reputation to be armed, and we're going to allow the progress that's been made at his church to now be swept, swept away, and all these people now have to go and find some other place to, to go, and new people in the future are going to come into this beautiful auditorium we were able to build, and they're going to go, what happened here? right? Those people are going to have to stand before Jesus for that. And he takes it really seriously. Third John in your Bible, third John mentions a guy, <laughs> mentions the name of a guy, Diotrephes. Third John is just one chapter, but John mentions this guy named Diotrephes. And here's what he says. He warns against Diotrephes, who, quote, loves to be first. Wow. That guy's name has been floating around for 2,000 years as a warning. And you know there are Diotrephes all over the place who want a name for themselves. And that's more important than the work of God. All right. So our unity is really important, okay? Acts chapter 2 says of the first church in Jerusalem that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The Bible places great emphasis on this unity. It's described by a word that's translated one another or each other. This word appears over 100 times in the New Testament. The Greek word alelone. Over 100 times, unity is developed in the local church when believers give attention 
to their relationship with one another in three areas, in our attitudes, our speech, and our actions. So we're going to look at those. Now before we do, I want you to make the connection though in your mind between this highly relational nature of the church and the God of the church. The reason that love is to characterize God's church in our relationships with one another is because the church is to be a reflection of her God. And her God is love. The Bible says, straight up, God is love. One, two. This God who is love, how does our God express love? Remember, before the world was ever created, of course, there was God from eternity past. And in what form has this God existed in eternity past? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God, the God who is love, has expressed love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for eternity. And this God creates people in His image. And He creates them to be diverse. Male and female, He creates them. And He creates an institution called marriage in which this love between dis diverse people is to be shown, demonstrated. And He calls out of the world a people to Himself that He calls the called out ones. That's literally what church means, the called out ones. And He forms them into a body. People that are from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different testimonies and stories. One of the reasons we're showing testimonies on, you know, on Sunday mornings like we did with Nikki on Sunday. Was that a cool testimony or what? Good work. Good work, uh, Gordon, really. But one of the reasons we want to do this is because we want to emphasize that. Hey, look what God brings together. Look what God does. Look what God does in the life of somebody like a Nikki. Nikki's got a completely different life than mine. I mean, you heard what she said about her parents. Weren't, her husband's parents weren't, weren't married to each other. Her parents weren't married to each other. She's a totally dysfunctional thing, and then God saves that girl. And now she's got six children who know Jesus. What a beautiful thing. And he brings people like, you know, Nikki and Manny into here, and he brings people like me together from a completely different background. But we love each other. So from diverse backgrounds, why? Because this is a reflection of the unity and diversity that is God. And, he, and, and then when that's ruptured, then, in effect, the image of God is ruptured. So God, over a hundred times in the New Testament, emphasizes a lay alone, one another, each other. And this unity is developed in our relationships with each other in these three key areas of attitudes, speech, and actions. All right, first of all, attitudes. Everything in life is based on what a person thinks. If a person does not think biblically, he or she cannot act biblically. So, clean out the junkyard that is your, your mind. When I say the junkyard, I don't mean impure thoughts necessarily, although that's obviously an issue for any of us. But I'm thinking about you, you and I need to think about our thinking. We need to think about what we think about. We need to think about what we think about other people. 
We need to think about what we think about what other people think about us. That's what I mean about the junkyard. Because there's so much of that that goes on in our minds. And it's in the recesses of your mind. I, I don't see it. But God does. And we see the results of it in relationships. So if you spend a lot of time wondering about what people think about you, or if you spend a lot of time making evaluations about what you think about other people, disciplining that mind so that it thinks it has attitudes that are in conformity with the character of God and what God says in His Word, the discipline of the mind is the most difficult and yet the most important aspect of spiritual growth. The discipline of the mind is the most difficult and yet the most important aspect of spiritual growth. And yet it's one that's most neglected. We focus on actions and getting our actions straight. But meanwhile, in our minds, it's a mess. All kinds of stuff going through there. Thinking all kinds of things about what do they think about me? What are they saying about me? You know, oh, who do they think they are? You know, all those kinds of things. So what's the Bible say about our attitudes? Well, there are things we need to put off. You see there it says believers are to put off the following attitudes toward one another. And you see the words put off are in quotation marks. That's because those terms put off and put on are actually terms used in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, and Colossians chapter 3. They're actually used in the Bible. Put this off, put this on, as we will see now. So what are we to put off? First of all, pride. This sin is not only the source of difficulties in human relationships, it's actually the basic element that's present in every form of sin. Pride. I mean, in some way, I am saying whenever I sin, in thought, in word, or in deed, that I deserve this. I deserve to be able to think this way. I deserve to be able to be, able to be treated better. That's why I reacted in in anger the way I did. Uh, and so whenever you set yourself up as I deserve, what's at the root of that? And so that's what we're saying here. At the root, really, of every form of sin is ultimately, is ultimately pride. We put off, top of page 234, criticism. Now, krites is a Greek word in your New Testament. And it's a word that means judge or evaluate. So here we're saying, all right, so you're telling me I should not evaluate anything? No. Notice the next line. Biblical evaluation of all things is commanded by the Scriptures. However, the Bible forbids a hypocritical condemning attitude. Therefore, let us, not, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And let me add to that that the Bible forbids a hypocritical, condemning attitude, and it also forbids an attitude of judgment and evaluation without sufficient evidence. That you make an evaluation about somebody like you know what's going on with them when, in, when you don't have the goods. So are you somebody who, for example, thinks you have sort of a sixth sense? to like evaluate people. 
I, I, I met a guy years ago who said, I can tell how spiritual somebody is when I shake their hand. And ladies, I, I, hope I, I hope I don't offend here, but I'm just giving you my experience. It's been my experience over the years that somehow women often become convinced that they have this ability to judge character about people and judge it in a sort of preemptive way. And their husbands have become convinced, and they'll say to me, oh, yeah, she's a really great judge of character. And whenever I hear that, you know, I mean, maybe you are, but the truth is none of us are clairvoyant, okay? None of us are omniscient. None of us know somebody's heart. And so maybe you've thought, you know, there's something weird about that dude, and then it turns out there was something weird about that dude, okay, later. And so you've been right one or two times, and now that's convinced you that you're right all the time. And I'm just telling you, be really, 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 really careful, all of us, men and women, about judging people without knowing for sure what's happening with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, judge nothing before the appointed time. Judge nothing before the appointed time. God will judge the motives of the heart. God will judge. Do you know you can't judge the motives of somebody's heart? You can judge actions. You can see actions. You can't judge motives. So when you start to get into that sort of speculation about people and all that, you violated this criticism thing. Envy. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. So believers are to put that kind of thing off. What do we put on? Humility. This attitude was hated by the society in which the first century church ministered. It's hated equally by modern culture. However, God greatly values humility. And you know, you can be humble when you know Jesus. Because even those, and Jesus said as much, did He not? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. When you know Jesus, you can lose in this life because you win in the next. So you, you, don't, you don't have to win. You can be humble. You can take the back seat. You can take the higher road. Um, in, a, in, a, in a politically charged environment like we're in now, man, I'm telling you that people are all about winning. They're all about getting the upper hand. That permeates the church and the attitudes people have. Humility, kindness. The essence of kindness is a willingness to give to others. The believer is taught by Christ's example to be kind even to the undeserving. Deference. The believer must develop an attitude that automatically yields his interests to the desires and needs of others. So do you find yourself saying, why do I always have to? Why does it always fall to us to? You know, it's not the heart of a servant that does that. The heart of a servant, you know, defers. The heart of a servant just says, Lord, thank you for allowing me to serve. Patience. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Look, there's always stuff that people do wrong that annoys you. You do stuff that annoys people. We all need to be patient with each other. So, we promote unity by our attitudes, and then top of page 235, by our speech. Attitudes display themselves now in words and actions. Do you guys see that? So, the attitudes come from the way we think. Those are internal. But now, the next two things are external. Words, now, are the expression of thoughts. Actions are the expression of thoughts. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so now we've, we've talked a bit about internal, the way we think, our attitudes, but now how does that show up in the way we talk and act? Attitudes display themselves in a person's words and actions. Of these two, words have the potential to be the most harmful or the most beneficial. You know, why is that? Why would words have the potential to be the most harmful or, or beneficial? Here's why. Because the reason James, book of James, takes nearly an entire chapter, chapter 3, to talk about the destructive force of the tongue is because the tongue is always at the ready. You don't have to, you don't have to be anywhere in particular. You don't, have to, you don't have to premeditate anything to spout off in a way that harps somebody. Actions, sometimes you've got to be in the right place. You've got to have the right circumstance in order to be harmful to the person. But with words, <laughs> the tongue's always with you. It can come out any time. And so words come out in a flurry. We all speak so many of them. So many of them, unfortunately, are thoughtless. And this is why the New Testament lays great stress on the constructive, the edifying. Those are synonyms. Construct, build up, edify, build up, use of speech. Here's Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But here's the contrast. Only what is helpful for, notice this, edifying, building up. Others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When you see there, let nothing... Let, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Don't get the idea that unwholesome talk is swear words. I mean, it is that. But it's not confined to that. It's anything that's not helpful <laughs> is, uh, is, is unwholesome. So the only kind of talk that should come out of our mouths is the stuff that's helpful. That. Well, now think about how that would censor your speech and my speech. If the only thing that comes out is what's helpful, but God says so. In Ephesians 4.29. So what do we put off? These are the kinds of things we put off. We put off falsehood. Do not lie. And, you know, there's the direct kinds of falsehood. I've got a, we've got a little book, Let, in our resource center um, called Deception. And Lou Priolo, who wrote it, it's uh, outstanding. And he's got about eight or ten different ways that we lie. And, you know, there's exaggeration, and there's all kinds of different ways that we lie. So it's not just the contrary-to-fact kind of lie. You know, <coughs> where did you go? And then you say, I went over here, when in fact you went over there. Okay, that's the contrary-to-fact lie. But then there's all kinds of more subtle ways that we lie. We put off falsehood. We put off slander. Slander is speech that's intended to, to injure Literally, the, the word slander means to talk down. What is said, now notice this, might or might not be true. So it's not, you don't say something negative about someone to another person, talking them down, and then your defense says, yeah, but what I said is true. <laughs> the, the point isn't, is it true? But it's the motive or the effect that's the issue. Now look, if I'm involved, like in leadership, sometimes I have to talk to other leaders about what are we going to do about this problem that this person is having? And in the course of talking about that, we have to talk about what the person's doing. So in that sense, we've said something negative about the person, but the motivation for saying it is to try to help them. But if you're saying it to someone to talk them down, to make them look bad, that's what we're talking about 
the Bible's talking about with slander. In other words, why are you saying it? And what harm might it cause? A good rule to follow when discussing someone else's problems. Don't say it unless you or the listener are part of the problem or part of the solution. Complaint. Grumbling is a cancer that grows rapidly. It has the potential of destroying a local church. Believers should practice constructive criticism rather than complaining. Constructive means build up, right? Criticism means evaluation. So if you make an evaluation and you say, you know what, we could do something better. I think I've got a suggestion for us doing something better. That is always welcome. It should always be welcome. That's constructive, building up, evaluation. So, hey, I see this. Have you ever thought about X? And then you make your suggestion. If your suggestion's not adopted, what do you do? Get mad and leave, right? <laughs> no, you, make your, you made your suggestion. And, and as, long as, as long as you were heard, hear this, you should always, we should always be content to be heard. We don't have to be heeded. As long as, you know, now if somebody blows you off, that's on them. And you should go to them and say, hey, wait, let's talk for a minute. I came to give you a suggestion and you, would, you, know, you blew me off. That's not right. So if you come to give me a suggestion and I do that, then you should challenge me on it. But if I hear you and I hear what you've said and then we decide to do something else, then you shouldn't get mad about it because you've been heard. You shouldn't demand to be heeded because now it's gone from a suggestion. Listen, if, if you get mad and leave or get mad and get ang you get angry at me because we didn't do your thing, then it wasn't a suggestion. It was a demand, right? And there's a huge difference. Believers are to put those kinds of things off. We are to put on other kinds of speech. Of course, truth. Each of you must put off falsehoods, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And I might add there, friends, when we talk about speaking truth, uh, sometimes that means speaking truth in love that's hard to hear. It, it means being willing to confront one another lovingly with truth. To confront a brother or sister with, hey, you're moving in a wrong direct direction, similar to counsel that we'll talk about in a minute. Top of page 236, encouragement. Biblical encouragement is more than a pat on the back accompanied by a promise that it'll all be all right. In the church at Thessalonica, there was a problem that caused the congregation to have great concern. Paul addressed the problem by explaining to them appropriate doctrine, and then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encouragement is speech that provides comfort by focusing on the teaching of the Word of God. That is really helpful, I think. See, encouragement is not, I come and say, now, now, it'll be okay. Because guess what? I mean, there's a sense in which it might not be okay. You know, if somebody's just had tragic news and someone's in a hospital and I come and say, it'll be okay, I don't know that, do I? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with the person that's in the hospital, so I can't lie and say that I do. But what I can do is I can tell them the truth of the Word of God. Hey, God's got this. That's true, isn't it? That's always true. God will sustain you through this. God's people will be here. God's Spirit will be here. The promises of God's Word. Are, you know, you're trying to remind somebody that's all true. So we encourage people with truth. And then counsel. The members of... And, and so let me back on that encouragement thing. You know, we tell people what... Ultimately, it will be okay because you got Jesus, ultimately. But our encouragement tells people why it will be okay. And why will it be okay? Because of the truth of God's Word, who He is, what He's doing in your life. 
All right, counsel. The members of the church at Rome were challenged by Paul to counsel one another. This counsel is biblical instruction that's given to correct sinful behavior. Look at this passage. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're full, filled with knowledge, and you are competent to instruct one another. That word translated instruct, the Greek word is nutheteo, nuthetic. It's sometimes translated counsel. You are competent to counsel one another. And that's where J. Adams got the title of his book in 1970, Competent to Counsel, from that, from that verse. And it, well, here's what it's saying. You know, if you're somebody who knows what God says, if you're somebody uh, who loves other people, you're full of goodness, then you're a person who's in a position you are able to bring to bear now instruction to folks to help them uh, and help correct patterns that are harmful to them. And then lastly, believers are to promote unity by attitude, by speech, and now by actions. What do we put off? We put off partiality. One 19th century preacher said the gospel is the great leveler. He meant that within the church there are no class distinctions. All believers must recognize that the church is made up of one group of people, namely sinners saved by grace. So, so no partiality. Um, you know, do, you, do you have people in the church that you gravitate naturally to? Okay, you know, that, that's natural. You know, you, you gravitate to people who are in your demographic, let's say. So married couples that have children, if you're a married couple with children. You know, if you're a retired couple, you gravitate toward retired couples. Okay, that's, that's all fine to an extent. But I would say to you, make it a point to get outside of that. So partiality can have a lot of forms, is my point. You know, it's not just racial partiality. I mean, that's obviously bad or economic partiality, I don't hang out with people who are beneath me, kind of thing. But it can also be partiality just based on, I only like to hang around with the people who, are, who I like to be with. You know, in the church, make it a point to get with people who are not in your, uh, in your, in your particular group. Retaliation is something to put off. Few church members would consider striking a blow to someone who offends them. Retaliation is practiced normally in more subtle forms but the effects are devastating. Subtle retaliation can be anything from political manipulation to just giving someone the cold shoulder. And then there's hostility, top of page 237. Must not be unfriendly or antagonistic with each other. So what do we put on? We put on service. The person who devotes himself to meeting the needs of his family and others has no time left to engage in destructive activities. This is why we use the term busybodies. You guys have heard that? <laughs> because the person is busy doing that kind of stuff rather than busy serving others. And what we're saying here is if you're busy serving others, you don't have time to simply look at other people and criticize other people and do these kinds of uh, harmful things to other people. Benevolence. It can be defined as acts of kindness or doing good to others. Believers must continually practice benevolence, primarily to believers, but also the community at large. Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, do good to all people, but especially those who belong to the family of believers. The desire to share one's material possessions was considered a privilege in the New Testament rather than a hardship. The churches in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And lastly, hospitality. Believers need to view their homes and possessions as tools to be used 
in accomplishing the objectives of the church. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let me ask you guys something, um, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything like that, but is it out of the question that you would open your home to have people come over? Is it out of the question that you would open your home to have a community group that meets in your home? Now, you might not be able to do it. You know, there may be lots of reasons why you can't do it. But it shouldn't be out of the question. You should view your home. I should view my home. We should view our possessions as tools of the Lord for ministry. And one of the reasons we have a home group ministry here is because I make the assumption that that's the way people are going to look at their possessions and their homes. And therefore, we're going to have places to do this. Okay? So I encourage you to have that kind of mindset. And, uh, and by the way, we're always needing homes. We have one group right now that's meeting. It's supposed to be a home group, but it meets here at the ministry center. And part of the reason is they don't have a, a suitable home for the, for the group to meet. That really should not be the case in a church of, of our size. So it's okay, we'll get it corrected. But I'm just issuing that challenge to you to be willing to view your home and your possessions as tools for, for the Lord. Okay? All right. I owe you 30 seconds. Thanks.